Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 138. In this episode, we're talking about women and the gender of God with Reverend Dr. Amy Peeler. Reverend Dr. Amy Peeler is Associate Professor of New Testament at Wheaton College and the author of the new book that we're discussing on this episode, Women and the Gender of God, published by Erdman's. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Dr. Amber Bowen and myself, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. So Amber, this was a fantastic conversation with Reverend Dr. Amy Peeler. It was so wonderful to hear about her new book, uh, which is not out yet, but you can pre-order it. It's it's due out October 4th with Erdman's. It's a fantastic conversation, really rich and robust. And there's a ton of insights in this conversation uh, about gender and, and how we talk about God. What were some of your takeaways from our conversation? You know, on, on just a personal level, I remember actually hearing Dr. Peeler speak years ago when I was early in my PhD program. And what was really interesting to me was to see a model of a woman Christian scholar who takes scripture seriously, has a high regard for the authority of scripture, and also a commitment to orthodoxy and a love for the church. And at the same time, is widely read resources of variety of thinkers and, and it sort of does not demonstrate a fear in terms of engaging wider literature about some really important topics. And so I think this conversation shows that in Dr. Peeler's work in the way that she's thinking, particularly when it comes to women and, and the gender of God. Yeah, and, and it's really it's really fantastic. I mean, most most of her focus, as she explains in this episode, is on Mary and thinking about Mary's role in in all of it, and just the way that she really uh, highlights, e- even from a Protestant perspective, how central Mary is and what the benefits are of thinking well about Mary in terms of the theological connections that are made if we don't ignore her. And I just uh, found that to be so uh, fascinating. Yeah, and of course there's this kind of hot button issue now, or this question about God's preferred pronouns. Should we refer to God with exclusively masculine pronouns or exclusively feminine or a mixture of the two? And I love how she is so willing to tackle that question head on and provides a lot of really great resources for how to think about that. And with that, here's our conversation with Reverend Dr. Amy Peeler. Well, Reverend Dr. Peeler, thanks so much for joining us. So glad to be here. I've shared with you, I've listened to the podcast, so it's super cool to be able to be on it. (laughs) Well, we're really excited to have you, and we're excited to talk about your new book, Women and the Gender of God. Can you tell us a little bit about the thesis of that book, what you're trying to accomplish with it? Absolutely. So I think kind of the opening sentence captures the thesis fairly well. Uh, Maybe I'd add just a bit. Uh, God, the Christian God, does not favor men, but uh, and also values women. Um, I recognize that that's a focus in a particular direction. One of the hard things about writing this book is that you can't do all things in one space. And so I am intentionally focused on the question of where do women fit in the Christian story. I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what got you interested in this topic, or usually there's a backstory. Um, What are some of the things that you were bringing with you to your Mm -hmm. research and to your writing for this project? Sure. That's a a fun question and allows me, hopefully as an encouragement to younger scholars, that um, passionate ideas can take a long time to develop. Um, There's no rushing some kind of scholarship, or at least that's been true for me. Uh, My dissertation was on the family of God in Hebrews. And so I spent, still spend a lot of time in Hebrews, and I was discovering this wealth of the, that author's depiction of God as father. And thought, oh, this is just amazing. There's so much here. At the same time, I was reading in my theological education a decent amount of feminist theology, and that was new for me. That's not something I'd grown up on. And so there definitely was this tension, like these voices are critiquing Christianity, and they have some legitimate critiques 
And at the same time, I'm seeing in the text this beautiful portrayal of what it means to call God Father. So even at my dissertation defense, they, you know, they ask you, what do you want to do next? And it was basically this book project. Like, this is what I want to. And, and that really is what I had the opportunity then to press into. Um, kind of a fun, so I was writing a lot, thinking a lot about God's uh, nature as father throughout the New Testament, Christian identity as brothers and sisters of Christ, and a fortuitous conversation with my colleague, Matthew Milliner, who teaches art history. Uh, we were friends from graduate school and now both teach here at Wheaton. We had Thanksgiving together one year. And he was like, you write about fatherhood, you write about sonship. Why don't you ever talk about Mary, Jesus's mother? His own research is on um, iconography of Mary. And I was like, oh, that okay, that's a good point. Growing up kind of low church Protestant, she wasn't typically on my radar. And truly that conversation then changed the trajectory of this work where her story became so much more of a prominent focus. Uh, and so then as I was attending to what does it mean to say we're part of the family of God, more and more the incarnation, particularly the mode of the way in which God revealed God's self to us in Christ became really central for this work. I love that um, looking at Mary in particular and seeing what her story discloses about God. There's a, a poem by Malcolm Geit. I'm yes. going to pull it up here. You guys probably know the one that I'm talking about um, that he wrote for um, the Annunciation, Feast of the Annunciation. And there's just this gorgeous line at the end. I mean, the whole poem is just beautiful, but the, the real kicker at the end is when he describes how the word with capital W word was waiting on her word, mm. uh, which is just so remarkable, but um, really highlights the way that God, you see Christ, but more generally throughout scripture, um, how God treats women and mm. how he, he engages mm -hmm. with them and like conferring that dignity and also conferring agency. Oh. Yes. Them and like evoking that and inviting that. And mm -hmm. I'm wondering if, if you, I'm sure you could speak to that in a bunch of different ways. And I, I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Oh, yes. Just on, on Guide in particular, I have a wonderful colleague uh, in New Testament, Julie Newberry, and she's constantly talking about my, Malcolm Guide, Malcolm Guide. I was like, oh, that sounds interesting. Hadn't done much with poetry. But at some point, another friend gave me his um, Advent devotional book. And I was, oh, my goodness, it's just been energizing for my own spiritual life. So now my children have bought me all the Malcolm Guide books. And I truly, for now several years, have read his poetry a long time alongside my own devotional reading. So he's been an incredible blessing. Um, but yes, this, this issue of God's invitation and agency, one of the chapters in the book is called Honor and Agency. And it really is an exegetical focus on the enunciation as recorded by Luke. Um, again, this is a place where critics of Christianity, some even post-Christian, have been really beneficial for me. They have named the dangers lurking in that enunciation scene. Is this forceful? Is this an evocation of the Greco-Roman picture of the gods kind of forcing themselves upon a woman? Um, I kind of in my own pietistic tradition never asked those questions, but my goodness, when I allowed myself to ask those questions, I began to see, number one, Luke avoids that assiduously, like this is not sexualized, this is not a power play. And in so doing, I came to have even deeper appreciation for the fact that this is recorded in our sacred text. Luke didn't have to tell this story. <laughs> he could have gone the way of Mark and John and said, we're going to focus on the adult life of Jesus. Yes, he's born. John tells us he has a mother. So does Mark. But they don't tell us anything about the account. But giving us this a, this account of Gabriel, this divine messenger conveying God's words to Mary, and then truly, as Geit says, waits on her. The, the, the last line of that is, and Mary, uh, excuse me, and Gabriel departed. I, I love discovering afresh with my students that he doesn't leave until she has answered. And this is another place where I've learned so much from my Orthodox and Catholic brothers and sisters who have reflected on this text for a long time <laughs> and consistently, uh, and this is joined by Protestant theologians as well, have seen this as a place of active faith. She really is an exemplar for all of us that we are given the chance to respond to God's call. 
Um, and, and so there's no force here. She is cognizant of what's being asked of her, both the blessing and the cost, and she accepts it. And that says something deeply profound about God's invitation to all, but that God doesn't prey upon the vulnerable, which in their society, in some places of ours, often includes women. In, in light of this discussion, I think, you know, um, plenty of our listeners will have Protestant backgrounds and, you know, may have some, you know, kind of alarm bells, maybe potentially going off sometimes right. when they hear too much discussion about Mary. Can mm-hmm. you speak to some of that kind of allergic reaction, for lack of a better word, among uh, certain types of Protestants, especially low church ones? Uh, and, and maybe what's lost when um, when we have such a, a kind of impoverished view of the theotokos? Yes, yes. Well, funny story maybe to begin, Theotokos in particular, uh, for, for, for a long time, this book uh, was named Mother of God. And then at some point, I even said uh, to the wonderful team of people at Erdman's, could we name this Theotokos? And they were like, no, <laughs> we can't. <laughs> That's not going to sell. I'm like, okay, I don't understand marketing. I'll take your word for it. But the, in my own brain, that for, for years was what this project was because I, I thought that was correct. And of course, that's a conciliar title. This is not, this is really shared. It's a Constantinople, in, Ephesus in 431. The church said this is the right language, not because it elevates Mary only, but because it says who her son is. He is fully human, born, and he is God who has taken on the flesh uh, and experienced the fullness of the human condition. So it really is in praise of Christ. Um, I've been so benefited from those who have attended to her life across the ecclesial spectrum, all Protestant all the way uh, to Orthodox Catholic. Uh, because if one's Mariology is healthy, and again, if we look at Christian art, so much of Christian art is her holding and she is gesturing to or pointing toward her son. So I've been especially blessed with, with students who have a very um, healthy Marian piety. They see her as a sister on the journey of faith. Uh, they, they respect her. And that deepens their worship and awe of God, their attention to her son. So I recognize, especially in um, some Latin American students have shared, there are ways in which in certain pockets of the church, not only in Latin America, of course, but that's some students that I'm keeping in mind at the moment, things have been unhealthy. Uh, There's been a view of God that is angry and distant. And so, and even that's attributed to Jesus at times. So hang out with the mother because she's nice. Um, Any kind of bifurcation, that's an indication you're going in the wrong direction. But there is also really healthy expression that she is part of our story and she is, you, you just can't ignore her, right? I think I have a section in the book in which I say, even the simplest Christian affirmation, Jesus is Lord, assumes her presence because Jesus is a human who walked, a Jewish boy, ran around in the New Testament. He had a mother. And so she's always present. And so you ask the second part of your question, what is lost? Um, some feminist theologians have definitely uh, weighed critiques against, in particular, the Catholic Church for the way in which Mary is so elevated that then she lose contact with any other person, especially any other woman. And, and that's something I, I wanted to learn from and listen to. But the, the charge against the Protestant churches, or at least parts of them, is that it's a boys club, right? <laughs> right? You've kind of, you've got God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, whom is often referred to with masculine fro- pronouns in Protestant circles. We might turn to that discussion in a moment, right? Uh, And then you have a male leadership. And so there's often just an absence of the presence of women. Um, And so by returning to Mary, I think you get a twofold benefit. Chiefly, this helps us reflect upon the humanity of our Lord and allows us to see God's great grace in coming and dwelling among us. Anytime we press into his humanity, we're pressing more centrally into healthy Christian theology. The the side benefit is that I firmly believe that for Protestants, especially those of us who have been fighting about the roles of men and women for a while, uh, my entire lifetime for sure, I think this is just a different way to ask the question. It like supersedes this intransigence that we've gotten ourselves into, mainly over Pauline texts. There's a conversation to be had there, but let's ask a different question. God came in this way. 
entered human entered the world through the body of a woman that has to be part of our discussion and i have come to the place of saying that's a central part of this conversation i really love that idea about how mary helps us realize that it's not just a boys club and specifically as you you just kind of concluded there that there's there's more to say about the role of men and women in ministry from mm -hmm. from looking to mary and i'm i'm really uh, curious about that and i i would love to hear more about how specifically uh, mary helps us with the question mm -hmm. of the role of women in ministry sure and i'm glad to go to that question it's really important for me to name and i also i do so very often in my classroom i teach in a space in which believers who love one another have different opinions on this question and I'm very comfortable with that so I am not in the place that I think everyone has to agree with one side or another I believe this is a place where we can love one another across difference so that's important for me to name what I have discovered in her story, though, is um, really twofold. We've mentioned one preliminary category that's important, and that is agency. Again, God doesn't force us into responding to the call, but invites us. Now, I recognize that might disclose the fact that I was raised in a free will tradition and we can have a conversation, but everyone believes in God's prevenient grace and everyone believes in there's some kind of human response to that. I know we can dial that out differently, but again, it, the importance of uh, God honors agency in her. Then what we see throughout her life, and, and also it's the case that there's not a whole lot of text about Mary in the New Testament, but my goodness, it's rich. Uh, it, it fills, uh, we teach a whole class on Mary and we always run out of time. In my own writing, I could have said so much more. It's so beautiful. But what we see in her story is a multiplicity of God's call upon her. Uh, chiefly, we know her as mother and she does influence and shape Jesus. So it's not like uh, she's just kind of this vessel that, that God decides to kind of flow through into, a, into the world. No, then she parents him along with Joseph in the early years for sure. But the way she interacts with Jesus in the temple in Luke 12, that is beautiful parenting. And Luke himself says, as Jesus needs to grow in favor and stature and wisdom with God and man, he goes back and submits to his parents. So she's shaping the son of God as he articulates um, his call for freeing the captives in Luke. That so echoes what she said in the Magnificat. She influences him in John 2. So yes, she's parent. That's part of her call, mother in particular, of course. But she also is prophet. I think there's a really responsible exegetical argument that sees the Magnificat as prophetic speech. It's in line with what God has done in Israel's scriptures and through the covenant, and it previews the ministry of Jesus. She is speaking truth. Now, one might say she's speaking truth there only to Elizabeth. But of course, Luke records it for us, and it has become then the liturgy of the Christian church. As an Anglican, I can sing or pray the Magnificat daily in evening prayer, and that's been a rich part of my own life. And then in Acts, Luke also records for us, and I and I make the exegetical argument that she is present at Pentecost, uh, and not only present, but vocal. For here's kind of the punchline of that. When Peter quotes Joel's speech, the spirit has fallen upon sons and daughters, female slaves. The only other female slave in Luke's writing is her. And so how could Peter have said this to the crowd if women weren't speaking? So she's a proclaimer. So I, I, I see in her life, it doesn't solve the debate about what women can do. But what it does, it says women can do a whole lot. They can do multiple things. Are women called to motherhood? That is a beautiful vocation that God enters into. Are women called to prophetic and proclamation? Yes, God, the spirit empowered her to do all. And I had a friend push back early in my writing, but why does she matter, right? There's other women in scripture. And I really do think uh, it matters chiefly because of the role she plays. No one can ever replicate this role. She truly is central. <laughs> this is how God enters the world. And so she really does become a template. If this is true of her, then we see that this can be how God works with all. And then we have other examples in scripture to which we can attend, all the women that are named in various positions. As you were talking, one of the things that was coming to mind, uh, which is not a shock to anybody, is uh, Kierkegaard's passages on Mary. Well, his, his pseudonymous author's passages on Mary in Fear and Trembling. Um, 
And what's really interesting is he puts Abraham and Mary kind of together. So Abraham is like the father of faith. And in many ways, Mary is portrayed as the mother of faith. Mm -hmm. Um, And the parallels sort of in the stories, Genesis 22, and then, um, and then really the, the account in Luke of the, the Annunciation, there's so many parallels there, particularly nothing is impossible with God as this resonating theme. And that um, both, for both of them, this stepping out in faith is recognizing that the situation that's around me right now, humanly speaking, is 100% impossible. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I usually tell my students, like, it doesn't take a gynecologist to tell you that Sarah is <laughs> not going to conceive, right? Like, <laughs> this is just basic biological fact, you know? And then, but the same is true for Mary, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it doesn't take a gynecologist to tell you that, you know, Mary's not going to conceive either. And so there's so many parallels there. And, and yet what they both wind up surrendering themselves to is that what is impossible for man is possible for God. Mm-hmm. And so it's just this beautiful, like parallel account of the humble courage of the life of faith that's modeled in both of these. Oh, what a, what a beautiful phrase there, Amber, the humble co- courage. And that's, that's the dynamism of, of so much of her story of, uh, yes, she humbles herself before God, but as she does so, God lifts her up. And, that, and that's so the dynamic of, of the gospel, really. Like as we surrender all, then God fills us beyond what we could fill with ourselves. So that's a, such a beautiful, yeah, the way in which there are um, parallels between these ancient stories of faith and then how uh, how Jesus himself comes are, are powerful evidence of God's consistency. So turning to the question of the gender of, of God, which is yes. uh, part of the title of your book, um, right. the, the first the first chapter uh, is is titled, you know, the father who is not male. Uh, and I'd love to hear I'd love to hear more about that. That might be uh, a, a bit uh, intriguing to to many of our listeners. You know, um, we've got the father, we've got we have the son and this is this masculine language. And yet you you remind us in another chapter, that God is not masculine is, is, is another title. And I'm wondering how you navigate that issue. Obviously, it's it's been common for for a while to to maybe elide the pronouns of God to say like God's self and I wonder if you could speak to that I've seen I've seen a couple of different like blog posts on the internet recently that have used language like well God's preferred pronouns are he him you know kind of sort of leveraging uh common parlance around transgenderism obviously and it it feels a slightly disingenuous to me it kind mm-hmm. of reminds me of how in in covid there was that whole you know my body my choice kind of co-op language, uh, which, which I thought was also disingenuous. I I'm just curious, you know, as, as, as people are, you know, navigating issues of gender culturally and, and thinking simultaneously about, you know, God's gender and, and, and obviously recognizing that God is not a a male, you know, uh, person, but like still struggling with like, well, we have this self-disclosure, biblical literature is using this language. How do you Mm -hmm. wrestle with that and kind of help uh, readers uh, wrestle through that? Wow. What a weighty question. Thank you for putting it out there. Um, Maybe first I'll speak about some of the things that go on in the book and then kind of where my current thinking is on pronoun use. Um, I could have written a really gentle and nice book about Mary, right? Like I'm a New Testament scholar. I'm finding these beautiful things. Isn't that nice that a Protestant is writing about Mary? Oh, how lovely, right? I could have played it safe, uh, but really kind of the, the burning desire of this work is that we get God right. Uh, the, like anthropology or even how if we think about exemplars of the faith, that's really important. But if our theology is wa- is off, we're going to go down the wrong path. And so one of my initial questions really post-dissertation was, was just this of um, – how and 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 I went to a Presbyterian seminary had such excellent training there, but this was a very live conversation at that time. And there's actually a, a, a number of books that have come out at that time period, maybe 15 years ago. This is my name forever. Uh, titles like that, where really people are arguing, no, God is is disclosed in masculine language. And I think that was my initial, yeah, that's right. I don't want to disagree or go against the grain of the text. 
But what I discovered in this work, uh, this first chapter, God is not male. I mean, I think readers may pick that up and be like, duh, <laughs> like no one says that in theology. This is kind of like a common is that we know he's not like a white dude in the sky. Um, but that chapter really is pressing into the resistance against sexualization in the Annunciation narrative to make utterly clear that both Matthew and Luke say that this is not an imposition upon Mary's body. That was important for me to kind of name in fullness, even though most people assume it. So that really is the focus on that chapter. I think where I might raise some more um, disagreement, and I'm looking forward to conversation, is the place where I say God is not masculine. Because what I discovered in the literature as I pressed into this is Everybody says, oh, of course, God's not male. But there was, I think I found, this kind of a sin insidious assumption that, yeah, but men are actually more like God or that God is masculine in that things that are true, true of God, God initiates, right, as creator, as, as giving salvation. God is transcendent. All these things I absolutely agree. And what better picture than God's um, initiation with Mary? But, but the, the difference there is not between a masculine and a feminine. And even someone as beloved in my own community as C.S. Lewis, we like to say at Wheaton, he's our saint. He's like the most quoted. Even he kind of, it seems to me, falls into this um, false and uh, in some places dangerous or not beneficial idea that transcendence and initiation are masculine qualities and reception is a feminine quality. I just think that is unnecessary. And I was benefited uh, from some, some literature on the uh, feminist philosophy of religion. We don't have to categorize the divine and the human in a masculine feminine response. Now I recognize some may say, well, that's kind of artistic. We don't mean men and women, but what I trace down in the book is one may assume that that's art, but it plays out in real life uh, in ways that, that can be quite damaging. And so my argument here is that while we could be attentive to feminine, or let, let me restate that, maternal quality as, of God in a hand places in the text, right? The mother hen, I am the rock that bore you. We know these, right? If you're in biblical studies, you can go off the list. I, I kind of thought instead of kind of attending to those, I'm going to press right into the kind of chief story for Christians, namely the incarnation. And let's see in this place where God causes a pregnancy, if actually what I discovered there is a negation, both of God's maleness, it is not sexualized, and a negation that this is masculine expression of God. No, this is God's work. And God is God and no human is. And God uh, is transcendent and an initiator, but he is not masculine, or at least that language would not be helpful. So that's what I seek to do in, in, in the text. Um, as far as pronouns go, I'm going to be real honest. I'm still thinking about this. I being trained at Princeton was taught to speak, uh, inclusively with reference to God. So you'll hear it in my speech. I frequently will say God's self, uh, a pushback against that is, does that you lose the personalness of God, right? God is not a thing. God is a person, father, son, and Holy spirit. And so I've tried to thread this needle by pressing into the, the triune names as revealed. But I think if we are attentive to what, like we know who God is because of God's coming in Christ. And so if that's how we discover that God is father, well, that's a different kind of father than we have imagined. It's a father who causes the birth of a son, but it's a father who's neither male nor masculine. So I am very comfortable with father language. In fact, I will say, when we call God Father, we're actually making space for the way in which God revealed, namely making space for Mary, the mother of Jesus. Um, but I'm a little bit more hesitant on masculine pronouns for God the Father and the Holy Spirit. Not resistant to it. In fact, being in a Wheaton context where that's very common, I will slip into it as well. But I'm very attentive in my writing. Can I uh, convey the personalness of God, but not play into this dangerous, unstated, insidious assumption that actually men are more like God. And so try to avoid those masculine pronouns if I can. When I can't, I take comfort in the fact that Jesus, absolutely male, 
right? He's circumcised and nobody raises a question, right? I that, that That's for real. This is how God comes. And then I have a whole chapter reflecting on, yeah, but he's male in a way that's different than all other males. So if I speak of masculine pronouns for even God, I do so with a Christological lens. But if I'm in a space, either in the pulpit or the classroom, where I can't take five minutes to talk about that, I will try to refrain from those masculine pronouns for the Father and the Spirit. I think that's great. And I think, you know, in, in regards to the spirit, at, at the very least, um, the spirit's preferred pronouns in Greek are not masculine. Right. Right. <laughs> right. Although, m- might I say something about that? Because that has been a field of research that some have gone in the way. And my understanding is, I want to do more research on this, that Syriac Christianity has really fruitful expressions on kind of the femininity of the spirit. Um, there, there might be a lot of wealth there. I have been resistant in the application of that in spaces in which it seems like adding a little feminine with the spirit is trying to bring balance. Well, that only assumes that the father and the son are in fact (laughs) masculine and therefore need balance. And and then you've got a two thirds, one third thing that's not working out so well either. So I have, um, I recognize the grammar of Ruach and Numa, but um, I I have not found that super helpful. I think it actually reinforces what I'm seeking to deny. As you're talking, I was thinking about um, just even in philosophy, the this idea, uh, you know, it's like, where do we get this idea that like the supreme being has got to be male or why would we just naturally kind of associate that with, with um, maleness or masculinity? What is the correlation between supreme, transcendent, all these things, and then, and then the masculine? And I mean, it, it really goes back to the ancient Greeks. Right, of, right. Like Aristotle, the, the, the prime mover, like the first yes. cause, the supreme being, mm-hmm. but then ideas about men and women as, you know, a woman is sort of like a, a fallen version of man. Totally. Yeah. So there's kind of hierarchy that comes mm-hmm. with that. So I wonder if, if we do just kind of by virtue of the, the Western tradition that we're yes. born into kind of assume like supremacy has got to mean masculine. Mm-hmm. And also with that kind of this binary logic, right. Of like yeah. transcendent, um, objective, those sorts of things and then kind of particular earthy finite subjective like those are associated with the woman yeah Um, I'm wondering if you and in your studies like in biblical studies if you've come across that kind of oh yes yeah and and in church history is that something that you through or are there differences there Oh, no, that's, I, I see the nature of your question. I mean, it, it's so consistent and there's so much good work here. Um, just tracing that this is, this is not a modern problem as any reader would know, right? This is, or, and even, sorry, notice my language there. I'm kind of putting my cards on the table. I called it a problem, right? I, I know that I might have interlocutors that would say, look, this is the grain of the universe. <laughs> Why are you pushing against this? This has been true in all times, in all places, this assumption. Um, granted, but I think then the, the conversation becomes, is the grain of the universe God's design or reflection of the fall, <laughs> right? And and we might go around and around about that, but that it appears consistently is undeniable. For Christians then, and our, our, our Jewish friends and neighbors, we would look to Genesis. And I don't have like an entire exegetical chapter on Genesis 1, Imago Dei, but it certainly is an undercurrent. And, and I know I need to do more work. It's so complicated. But what is disclosed there is that the image of God, and this isn't, I always tell my students, this isn't a political correct uh, translation. It's there. <laughs> it is male and female. Now, of course, we, we, we can't plumb the depths of precisely what that means. But it is striking to me that I, I do follow the line of thought that, that Jesus, the embodied son, is the ultimate template of humanity. Uh, I think in God's knowledge, uh, I'm a kind of incarnation anyway person. Like I think God would have become incarnate even if sin wouldn't have happened. And so in the mind of God is the embodied son. He is the template for the image of God in male and female. And this is where I press in a bit to um, the nature of his body. And what are we really affirming if doctrinally we affirm virginal conception? What we're affirming is, in a mystery that we cannot fully understand, his body, his flesh and blood, and we kind of bank a whole lot on the fact that he actually had flesh and blood, it comes only from her. There is no male involvement. 
Now, of course, God <laughs> does something. We understand DNA, right? There, there's something that happens. God supplies something. But, and the fathers were united on this. She is not just a vessel that he zooms through. He had flesh and it was hers. She gives him the link to David. She gives him the link to the covenant people. She gives him the link to all humanity. And so what you have in the son of God incarnate is this embodied embrace of male and female, a male who takes his flesh only from a female. Now there's, for me, there was just such power there in an affirmation that maybe we all kind of know, but I hadn't really thought about that deeply. And so then I would say, that's the goal toward which we press. And though all society has privileged the masculine or or many or most, um, I don't think that's God's design. Okay, so so what about uh, the possibility that we get this understanding or this Im- implicit idea that God is male, masculine, by the way that um, scripture portrays things like, um, you know, Christ and his spousal love for the church or yes. like Hosea and Gomer, for example, right. or even Israel being mm. referred to as she and, and kind of the God's covenantal love really reflective of. So, so we have these kind of marriage metaphors and pictures right. throughout scripture. So yes. it would make sense why we would associate God with the master right. and the, you know, church as the receiver. So mm. yeah, what, what would you say to that? Oh, so glad you raised that question. And there is a little piece where I reflect on that, probably not as in-depth as I might in the future, but I knew that that needed to be named. Um, I want to honor and celebrate these metaphors, which are so beautiful, found in both Old and New Testament. Though, if, again, I my, my hermeneutic would be that my New Testament reading, or, or I should better say the revelation of Christ, helps me to read back through God's promise uh, to the people of Israel. So really, Ephesians would be my local text for this. Um, and what we, we see there is, yes, we have this dynamic, the self-giving, but I'm going to return just briefly to what I said, but Jesus is interesting always, praise God, uh, in that he he's male, but he's not like every other male in his embodiment. And, and it's actually really easy to see in the church. The church is made up of lots of people, uh, male and female. So we play maybe into these roles or we can imagine these roles at times. But any kind of, and Amber, this is not at all what you're doing, but but any kind of kind of a flat-footed application of that metaphor, I think is uh, not paying attention to its complexity. And so, yes, do we have this dynamic? Yes, but that, uh, I wouldn't want to, to kind of make that so rigid into, and God is only this, and the church is only this, um, because that's, simply not true of the individuals who make up this relationship. I I would also push back maybe a bit against a certain line of thought um, that has become very popular, at least in some Anglican circles, of kind of a a attention to uh, theology of the body, which has many beautiful things and benefits. But in some reflection on that literature, it seems to me that there is an elevation of this metaphor, this marriage metaphor, that doesn't resonate fully with what I've discovered in scripture. To me, what is more prominent is this idea of family in which God is father over the brothers and the sisters. That's at least happens more often. (laughs) And I don't know quite what to do with that. So I don't want one metaphor to, to silence another. That is not at all what I'm saying. But there are some claims made uh, in, in some in some veins of this literature of the marriage metaphor is the most revelatory. It's the most important. And I just struggle with the data that that's, that, that's at least quantity wise, not what we see the most. Now I want to recognize this could be my own bias, right? I wrote my dissertation on family themes. <laughs> I think there's a lot good going on here. Um, but I'm, I, I want to make sure that this kind of um, structure in which, right, Jesus is really clear, nobody gets named as the father in your community. Don't use that language, right? You are all brothers and sisters, those of you who do the will of God. So this kind of clear demarcation between God, divinity, authority, and all the other humans down here. 
that at least needs to be one that we wrestle with, which doesn't have to be masculinized and feminized in the way that the marriage metaphor, of course, naturally leads there. Um, but I think even the metaphor itself doesn't demand the kind of uh, a pro the kind of projection onto God of a an uncomplicated masculinity. If I could follow up with another what what if or what sure. what what about this um, and in terms of um, thoughts that uh, could come up in in the classroom as you're thinking uh, especially about Jesus being male and you mm -hmm. talked about how that's definitely you know there it's clear he's circumcised etc could God have taken on the flesh of a female in the incarnation, for mm -hmm. example? So I often think about this in terms of the, you know, the, the adage, uh, the unassumed is unhealed. Right. Uh, and, and I, and I'd love to hear some thoughts about, about this in terms of uh, Jesus's humanity um, and, and the, the, the fullness of the incarnation where, where in, in those Christological debates, we want to say that, you know, he really had a, a human mind because otherwise, you know, we couldn't be saved you know, of all of the noetic effects of the fall and these sorts of things. Um, but but I'm wondering about the the gender part of it, if you could uh, address okay. that. Oh, and there's so much good literature here. And I love that question. I just really kind of jump out of my seat when that question comes. Um, I hear, you know, I think some healthy uh, trajectories of scholarship have paid attention to typology, right? There, There's the hope for uh, king. There's the hoped for priest. And so because those are male roles in Israel, it makes sense that then Jesus fulfills them as male. There, there's definitely something to sit with in that. I think a really helpful argument is one about the giving up of power reflected in, say, Paul's uh, hymn in Philippians, right? And males in that society and in many places still today had power. So if he's going to disclose uh, who God is as one who doesn't hoard, but freely gives, then he would need to be male to disclose that. Um, I, I, I could be in line with that. What was exciting to me, and maybe everybody always knew this, but it felt fresh to me, is that I now can firmly answer that question with a no. I do not believe uh, the Son of God could be incarnate as a female. And here's why. If God said, I'm really going to enter into humanity and I'm going to do so through conception and birth. Now, I love the writing of someone say like Oliver Crisp has a great reflection. God didn't have to do incarnation. God didn't have to be born, right? We have to defer and say, God could have decided to save us in any way that God wants to. And we don't know. But this is what the text revealed to us happened. And I trust that. And so if God said, I'm going to be born to come and dwell among you to take on your flesh, then God has designed our bodies in such a way that we are born from women. We all have a mother. And so were the Savior to come as female, then it would be a female incarnation who got her flesh from a female. And John, I'm sorry, somehow you would be left out of that equation. Coming as male, embodied from a female alone, there is, as I said a moment ago, a return to that Genesis 1, and 27 embrace of both in the image of God. Um, and so I, I think that answer is a firm, this is how, how God said, it. and so really it, in the, in the birth of every child, there is a reminder, this is how God, our God entered the world. Uh, how beautiful is that? I love that. I, I anticipated that that's what you were going to say. And I was thinking this really brings us back full circle that this is why we need Mary in our theology. Right. Right. Well said. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm afraid I thought you had a second part of that question and it kind of left me. The unassumed is unhealed. Yeah. So I'm, I've been asked to present on my book in a few weeks and it's been really fun to kind of return to material. But I think I already have some new questions that I didn't solve. And that that makes me happy as a scholar. Um, but really this embodiment, right? Our faith is not just spiritual. Yes, we encounter God in our spirits, but my goodness, our faith is embodied. We put water on our bodies and we eat some little food, right? This is weirdo faith is what we do. Our God created and will recreate. And so I truly think Jesus's embodiment in this way through virginal conception is really powerful. 
Now, that being true, I also am kind of wrestling with the fact that he experienced the world as male. Now, there's some very fascinating literature that asks the question about the possibility of Jesus as transgender. I've sought to read that literature. Um, I want to be attentive to that, but I, I just don't see in the text uh, a good indication that that is what happened. So um, maybe I've not fully understood that, but that's not been convincing to me thus far. He really did exist as a male. And so if we were to press in that direction, then we might end up in this place of exclusion for women because I navigate the world with a female body. He navigated the world with a male body. Therefore, can he not assume some of my experience? I don't know quite what I'm going to do with that because we're I'm going to this place we're talking about discipleship. I've really been reflecting on that question. It might be that I've bumped up against as many in our discipline will describe the scandal of particularity. Right? We cannot all demographically we don't map onto Jesus. He too is Jewish and I am Gentile. He lived in the 1st century and I lived I, he didn't have access to the internet. Right? I mean there's like a hundred things that at some point we're going to hit a line of his experience of the world was different than mine. And truly, that would be the case for any human, save him, the beauty of the uniqueness of each human person. So whether that means then in some way women are cut off from his experience, I'm not yet satisfied. And here I'll return to my love of Hebrews. Hebrews is rather convinced that his navigation of the world, which included suffering and temptation, was sufficient to make him that sympathetic high priest. And so that says to me that, and Hebrews is very attentive to even the emotive experience of Christ, that there is something human that while it is processed through our embodied identity, is still human and enough that that he can be my savior fully it's so fascinating i mean you guys are the biblical scholars so you tell me but <laughs> what comes to mind is like galatians 3 mm-hmm. um, that there's no more jew nor gentile nor right. slave nor free nor male nor female but it, it says for you are all one in christ yes. jesus yes and so i'm wondering if that I mean, it doesn't answer the question of like the metaphysics behind it, right? But, right. but it basically is saying like Christ did assume all of it. Yes. Yes. Right. What male and female, he did right. in some way assume it. And so you're yes. united. Yeah. And I think that's a, you know, coming from the place where I, I didn't grow up this way, but I now do affirm women in ministry. That verse can be, can be thrown around a bit thinly. Well, look here, it says this, um, I think the richer reading of that text, which which many scholars, of course, do, is the focus on embodiment there, right? That's a baptismal covenant text, right? You're doing something to your body. And so there is there is a mystery there maybe that we can't fully get to, that somehow truly in Christ we are included. Um and, and then what I love about that Galatians passage, I mean, I just adore Paul. And here you see him at his finest, right? He's like, hey, guess what, Peter? It means not pie in the sky. We're all going to hang out someday in the kingdom. You will absolutely sit down to dinner right now. And so I think a question for our communities is, though he reflects nothing on gender in, in, in Galatians, if we are to take the same kind of application, any community, whatever their position on gendered roles in the church, can ask the question, how can we press into the unity that we share in Christ? Really, now, not as some form of future escape, but what can that look like now? And I respect brothers and sisters who would describe themselves as complementarian, that I believe they can press into that. Uh, I don't want to say that my way would be the only way that one can experience fullness, Uh, but I think it's a good question to ask. Are we living out this inclusion in Christ? Yeah, I mean, Paul doesn't reflect on 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 gender per se in Galatians, but it is such a fallocentric text uh, for him to for for him to make that comment. It is actually pretty robust. That's really, thank you. That is so helpful. I have done a little bit of reflection on then how he turns to Sarah and Hagar. He ends up saying kind of, who's your mama, right? I mean, there's like themes of rebirth there uh, that I think that there's a whole lot more knowledge, Paul's knowledge of actually the incarnation. Uh, And of of course, that is my like go-to text where Paul says the one time, how did God send his son born in 
into the world, born of a woman. Uh, so I think there's some, I think there's something going on there that needs to be explored, but well said. He has, his whole thing is circumcision. That's pretty gendered. I, I love the who's your mama comment. And then, of course, right before the allegory, basically, Paul says he's their mama. He, he yeah. talks about having the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in them. Exactly. And I think some of my early eye opening to this whole literature, I was trained, thankfully, by Beverly Gaventa, lots of excellent teachers at Princeton. She was a one of them. But her class on Paul and gender just opened my eyes to think of And her book then, you know, Our Mother St. Paul uh, was one of my first kind of experiences to see things in the text that I'd simply skated over in the past. One of the things that I'd like to ask you is a little bit more of a meta question about your scholarship in general and your approach to scholarship, because one of the things that I think is fascinating um, in, in this work in particular, but I think in your work more generally, is your willingness to engage broadly with lots of different scholars on these various issues. And I know that you are you have a high view of scripture, you're very committed to orthodoxy, right? And yet you're willing to read and resource from, from a, a wide variety of, of thinkers. And so I'm wondering if you can share a little bit about like why that's important to you, how you do that, how you navigate and kind of what your methods are. Thank you for that question. It is important to me. Um, I'm going to do a plug here uh, because I've, I've drunk the Kool-Aid. I was trained at a liberal arts institution and I'm a big believer in the liberal arts. Uh, I truly believe that I was taught to read graciously and well from a whole variety of places, like not afraid to look into any literature. That was true in my undergraduate institution. The same kind of graciousness continued on into my graduate education. Uh, and so that's really important to me to display. Um, I Being at a place then where I engage with art art history people. I did my sabbatical in St. Andrews with the Lagos Institute, which is analytic philosophy, systematic theology, and biblical studies. Truly one of the best periods of my entire life to see the fruit of listening to others. Um, I, so, and I think, yeah, I, I'm grateful that I have been trained in such a way that I feel really comfortable listening to people on my right I want to learn from them. Like maybe they're seeing something in scripture that I've forgotten in the past 20 years. I want to listen to people in my left because they kind of like name things without embarrassment. They kind of name the elephant that I might be hesitant to name. And if I read widely and take part of all the disciplines, um, I hope that makes for better work. It certainly has made me a better scholar. And so I hope I can continue that. Well, Reverend Dr. Peeler, this has been a very rich and robust conversation. We're so thankful for you to join us, and uh, we hope everybody checks out your new book, Women and the Gender of God. Thank you so much. This has been a lot of fun. Blessings to you both. 